0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening, because this is how we do it.
1: Hi again, everyone, and welcome into another installment of the Legal Faceoff Podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. And Rich Lenkov of Downey & Lenkov. We start off with the topic of the latest Mega Millions awarding one lucky soul, a payout of over $1.5 billion. But if you happen to be that next lucky soul, what steps would you take? Well, that's exactly what we're going to ask. Walt Blenner of Blenner Law Group. He's a 30-plus year practitioner, injury and estate planner, but also with some experience in representing lottery winners as well. Walt, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome.
2: So while large lottery jackpots, as Joe mentioned, have been in the news recently, and as recently as last week, there was a lone winning ticket for a record $2.04 billion Powerball, which was apparently sold in Altadena, California, making the ticket holder the largest lottery prize winner ever. You on occasion represent lottery winners and help guide them on what's next for them after they win the lottery. One of the first suggestions that often comes up is for winners to keep their winnings confidential. We often hear in the context of these winner stories who these folks are and where they live. How do you recommend people keep their winnings confidential if they do win the lottery, particularly given that we live in a social media age?
3: Well, in many states, you don't really have that luxury. There's only a handful of states, I think five, that allows you to maintain your, um, or keep your identity quiet or secret uh, here in the state of Florida, there are five minimum requirements, your name, your town, how much you won, where you wanted and the method of winning, whether it was quick pick or um, you, you chose the numbers yourself. So in states that do allow anonymity, like Illinois, which had a billion dollar winner this past summer, that person was able to take their sweet time and line everything up in order to redeem the ticket at Uh, At their will Um, in states where your identity is going to be known, uh, the clock is ticking. Sometimes you really need to get your ducks in a row fairly quickly uh, because walls are going to start kind of caving in. Um, So typically the first thing to do is to take a cell phone photo of yourself with the ticket. And if you're in a state uh, where your identity is not going to be shielded, sign the back of the ticket to establish ownership.
4: Um Well, I want to get to uh, the next steps after you take that picture in a moment, but what's the logic in the states where you do have to disclose the winner? It seems like there's a sound reason not to do that because you know inevitably these winners are going to be um, attacked for lack of a better term for by all sorts of people, all sorts of people wanting a piece. Uh, I assume the logic in those states that mandate the identity be disclosed is that they want to, Foster some degree of transparency and avoid, you know, fraud. But that seems to be outweighed by the desire and the need to keep this secret
3: for as long as the recipient feels necessary. It's kind of a, a public policy decision, state by state. I can say with my first lottery winner, he won three million dollars, and while. Well, Most people probably wouldn't need an attorney for a $3 million win. This gentleman had uh, no um, bank account. He'd never been on a plane. He'd never made more than $25,000 a year. And he was a single father of seven. So um, he had seven child support judgments filed against him. And uh, it's a state lottery's nightmare when somebody wins a lot of money and they leave behind a lot of creditors. So part of what happened in Tallahassee when we redeemed his $3 million win is we were waiting a long time while they calculated not only all the judgments and passed through child support, but also all the interest and penalties he had accumulated over time. So it is a state public policy.
4: So um, you talked earlier about some steps after you take that photo and you sign it. uh, Hiring a lawyer, we all agree, thankfully, that that's important early on what other professionals should lottery winners especially ones winning considerable sums like the powerball what, what powerball who should they retain
3: uh, early on uh, it's a very good question I, and i am not an expert in wealth management i'm just uh, i'm an attorney i'm a practicing attorney day by day so i was sort of the financial quarterback Uh, When a client retains me after a big lottery win, I then set up the team for him or her or them to interview. And it includes a wealth manager, it includes a tax attorney, and of course it includes a CPA. My job is kind of fleeting. I take them from day of win to day of redemption, and then the team takes them from that point on. And I also consider part of my job, after the ticket has been redeemed, to sort of stand back and stand away from my client. Uh, and protect them. Because here comes the onslaught, depending on the amount of the win, here comes the onslaught of people wanting things. People wanting to sell them things, people wanting to invest invest his money, um, and then the hard luck stories. So part of my job is also to shield my winner from that sort of thing.
2: So, Wall, just a question about, you know, taking lottery winnings as a lump sum versus an annuity. Do you have any thoughts on that based on your experience counseling lottery winners?
3: Yeah, the only time I'm ever pro um, taking it uh, in in, an annuity form, which is so much per year over time, is if the winner is very young or not particularly um, adept at handling money. Uh, This is not a made up statistic. This is a guaranteed statistic. 70 percent of all lottery winners are not only broke, they're bankrupt in five years. So assuming somebody has some acuity with wealth, uh, it's always more advantageous to take it lump sum and do your own investing or with a team. Um, but for those who aren't good with cash or maybe have some mental challenges or are quite young, the annuity um, route is not a bad way to go. It uh, ensures income f- possibly for the rest of their lives.
4: That's a really interesting stat uh, within five years. That's amazing. Um, I'm also curious about litigation when you buy a ticket with friends and family. You know, a lot of us do that. You go in. It's a fun thing to do as a, as a family or an office. And guess what? Uh, you, hit the, you hit the jackpot. You hit that lottery. And then whoever is in possession of that ticket is now the one who's trying to collect. And suddenly you've got 20 other people trying to uh, get in on that jackpot. That's got to lead to some, uh, some litigation and, and, and some strife for sure for those, those groups.
3: Yeah, this actually has real life application. It was maybe 15, 20 years ago, a gentleman every Sunday morning would go to his um, waffle house and he would tip the waitress, whoever's waitress of the day was with a lottery ticket. Well, the drawing was the night before and all the uh, waiters had uh, agreed that if any one of them won it, they would split it, whatever it was, five or six or seven different ways. Well, guess what? One of them did win. Uh, The man came in. He tipped the waitress with a lottery ticket. She won and she headed for the hills. And this went to court in front of a full jury. And the jury came back and awarded all seven of them to having to split it equally.
2: So, Walt, are there any other mistakes that you've seen lottery winners make that you can share with our audience in case they're lucky enough to win the lottery at some point?
3: Mistakes. Um, Yeah, I I think one mistake is to think that there's any possible way that you can go back to your old life. Now, we're talking about extreme wealth winners. We're not talking about five or 10 million, which, of course, would be lovely. We'd all love love to have that kind of a a year. But for those who win 100 million, 200 million, a billion, anywhere in that range, um, there's no going back. There's no turning back. And uh, I've seen lottery winners uh, go from absolute euphoria to looking like they've got the weight of their shoulders on the world or the weight of the world on their shoulders in a matter of just 24 hours. So it can be a very daunting win. And let's face it, nobody needs 400, 500 million dollars, 1.2 billion, whatever it is. It becomes almost more of a burden than anything else, because here comes doubt uh, and here comes paranoia. Here comes trust issues. So um, you really need to make drastic changes uh, very quickly, which is sort of unlike any other issue we have in our lives. Usually we want to take time and sit back and think about things before we do it. But in the case of extreme lottery winners, they need to hit the ground running.
1: And here comes a lot of distant relatives you've probably never heard of, too. That's Walt Blenner of WaltBlennerLaw.com. Walt, thank you so much for the time and the insight. You're very welcome. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at
5: McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale-Hubbell and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers & Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact
1: Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to Legal Face Off. Something we haven't talked about in a bit is cryptocurrency and the conversation of investing in it. With that, we bring in Brian Davidoff of Greenberg and Glusker. You can find out more about their law firm at GreenbergGlusker.com. Brian, thank you so much for the time today.
4: Thank you. Brian, just like that, uh, FTX uh, is is collapsed, right? On Friday, they declared, uh, they filed for bankruptcy protection and lots of questions in the wake of that. Uh, Two-minute answer in, in a short period, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, I guess the first question is, uh, you know, because of the allegation that Sam bankman Freed SBF, used a lot of the uh, assets from this company for his own personal benefits. What individual liability do you see for him personally?
6: Well, it's somewhat of a complicated question. Uh, First, we have to figure out whether or not the customer deposits were inappropriately used. If they were, there is potentially uh, a series of legal liabilities. One of which is that as the director of a company, you can be responsible uh, for uh, acts committed on behalf of the company. If there were torts committed on behalf of the company, you can be responsible. You can be responsible uh, in your director and officer capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this is also something that the Securities and Exchange Commission is looking at. Uh, whether or not uh, he made representations and didn't comply with them.
4: So the SEC is certainly looking at this. Uh, the Justice Department is also reported to be investigating. Uh, this raises the questions, of course, of whether the federal government might file criminal charges against him. Uh, what are the chances of that happening, you think? And what, what would that look like? What, what, what would the charges be for this individual?
6: Well, they, they could range anything from securities violations to uh, commodities trading violations. Uh, as you may know, there's been a little bit of a war between the SEC and the CFTC, whether one or both of those agencies are going to regulate this crypto industry. Uh, for the most part, the industry has wanted the CFTC to do so, but uh Gary Gensler who is the chair of the SEC has asserted that uh, the SEC has jurisdiction over these agents uh, over these uh, crypto exchanges so i think it's it's certainly possible that uh, with his aggressive style that we'll see some uh, action from the SEC
4: well, it's interesting you mentioned jurisdiction. Inevitably, that will be a defense that uh, Bankman Freed raises, right? Uh, the fact that this company is headquartered in the Bahamas does not specifically cater to Americans. Uh, he will argue that it's beyond the reach of U.S. law enforcement, don't you think? Well, he might
6: try to do that for some transactions, uh, but I think there's a couple of things that uh, run against him on this. Number one is that the entities that filed in the U.S. are. Uh, Uh, FTX Trading, uh, which is uh, a a Delaware entity. And then um, uh, he's got a related company that also filed. So both of those are based in the United States. And second is that what we've seen the SEC do in prior proceedings is that they have asserted where the majority of the computer nodes are. Where are most of the validating transactions done? The SEC has at least asserted in prior litigation that if the majority of those computer nodes are in the United States, then the United States has jurisdiction over the entity. So uh, that's something to be seen over here.
4: Brian, another uh, challenge that the Justice Department would have in addition to jurisdiction, which seemingly sounds like it's not a big hurdle to overcome, uh, but this might be a little bit tougher is to prove intent, right? We've covered on this show with hundreds of cases that uh, you need to prove intent as a prosecutor generally, at least to impose the harshest sentences. In this case, you know, what are your thoughts on whether the Justice Department could prove the requisite intent, the mens rea, to show not that this individual was simply poorly managing these funds, but that he intended, he purposely. Uh, did so with the intent to deceive uh, investors and and uh, and those account holders.
6: So let me respond uh, primarily as an insolvency lawyer. I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I, be that as it may, I think the issue here is less focused on intent and more whether or not uh, there's a securities violation and as you know from a securities violation perspective uh, you, you you need to show other standards not necessarily that one intended to violate the securities laws. So if the SEC goes forward with a uh, some kind of a charge then I think the standard's going to be a little different. It might be that the DOJ would have to prove their criminal intent
4: that is correct. So as an insolvency lawyer, Brian, can you explain to us, Understanding that this is really the Wild West by its very nature, there's not a lot of precedence here given, uh, you know, uh, the very nature of of crypto uh, as an investment. But how do you get your money back? I mean, if I lost my money uh, by uh, this insolvency FTX, uh, do I stand in line the same way I would from a traditional business or is is, is it more challenging given the lack of regulation and the nature of, of crypto?
6: Well, unfortunately, I think it's the latter in this case. And the reason is that it is really right now the Wild West. Uh, As you may know, there have been prior bankruptcies filed in the United States, the two most notable of which uh, are the Voyager bankruptcy and the Celsius bankruptcy, both of which were filed in New York, in the bankruptcy courts in New York. And one of the big challenges in those cases, uh, which certainly exists in the FTX case, is who owns those deposits? And that's a really key issue. If the deposits are owned by the customers, then they should be able to get whatever is available, whatever monies can be recovered. Uh, they should be able to get that in priority to other creditors. If, however, the money is not customer deposits that are owned by the customers, then those funds are available to general unsecured creditors. And the question is, okay, how do you determine that? Uh, One of the key issues that you need to look at is what is the customer agreement? What does the customer agreement say? Does the customer agreement say that the funds belong to the customers or does the customer agreement not say that? There is some good language from the customer's point of view in the FTX uh, customer use agreement that seems to indicate that the funds that are in the various wallets, customer wallets that are hosted by the FTX exchange, are customer property. But there is some other language in that agreement which seems to run against that to some extent because it talks about the ability of FTX to suspend withdrawals. It talks about the fact that uh, the funds will not be segregated. So to wrap up the answer to your question here, there's been a lot of litigation in the Celsius bankruptcy and in the Voyager bankruptcy About who owns those deposits, and undoubtedly, there's going to be a lot of litigation in this case as well about that issue.
4: Brian, last question here. It doesn't seem like a uh, very quick process, right? I mean, traditionally, in insolvency in a business, even larger ones, you could, you know, with some certainty, certainty uh, predict how long this takes um, and give. you know, customers some sense of when they could get their money back. I think I read that there was 156 entities or so involved. Um, It's got to be an incredibly complex challenge to unravel uh, this this particular insolvency.
6: Well, it, it certainly is. And one of the fairly alarming signs of what's going on is that when the bankruptcy cases were filed in the Delaware bankruptcy courts, Uh, There were no what's called first day motions that were filed and first day motions are almost inevitably filed in any large bankruptcy case. Those are the various pleadings that a lawyer files to basically begin the administration of the bankruptcy case in front of the bankruptcy judge. They were not filed here. And that means they are just trying to get their hands around the financial information. So it just to me is a telltale sign that there's a fair amount of chaos going on on their end.
4: We know for sure that some lawyers are going to be making money off this case for, for quite, a while, <laughs> quite a while.
1: This is true. Again, that's Brian Davidoff of Greenberg and Glusker, greenbergglusker.com for more information about that firm. Brian, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Are if you're not watching The Watcher on Netflix, you've at least heard about it. Well, what if there's some legal implications if it were to happen in real life? With that, we bring in Rachel Herbenko of Fearless Legal Services. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you. So, Rachel, we're all uh, transfixed by the show, The Watcher, as Joe mentioned. Frankly, I'm like almost done. I'm finding the last few episodes hard to watch. But anyway, this is obviously about a family that is driven from their home by a stalker, basically, who sent them a series of letters threatening them and saying uh, they should move out of the house eventually, at least according to the series, they give in. Um, now, we all are familiar with disclosure duties for physical defects. When you buy a house, when you sell a house, you've got to disclose any physical issues or you could be sued. But what legal duties we want to know from you does a seller have where they sell a house regarding a watcher or some other kind of you know non-physical, creepier uh, potential hazards in, in a house.
7: So, in the state of Illinois, you are only required to disclose physical material defects. Um, however, there's, you know, what everyone loves to hear is a gray area, right? So, if if you as a client came to me and asked me, should I disclose this? My legal philosophy of it is, you should always over disclose because there's always the chance that it may come back and bite you if you're looking at the letter of the law. No, you don't have to disclose it. In fact, in most states, you do not have to disclose something that's not a material defect. Um, California, uh, Alaska, Vermont, and South Dakota are the only four states where you have to disclose something like this.
2: So, Rachel, the owners in The Watcher also threaten legal action against the Westfield, New Jersey, real estate broker, who very confidently says he's shielded from liability. Would that be the case in Illinois?
4: Yes. So in Illinois, you don't have to disclose even, I mean, obviously the same, it sounds like rules apply to the broker or the agent as they apply to the house seller.
7: Yes. And, um, yes. It, but. It's funny because you will get different legal opinions from different places. For example, the General Counsel of the Illinois Association of Realtors will tell you, and she stated in a number of articles about this, that you do not have to disclose. However, the General Counsel for the National Association of Realtors will say that you should disclose it, not as a matter of law necessarily, but as a matter of Ethics. Um, and I'm always a proponent of disclosing stuff or at least advising the client, hey, you know, technically you don't have to disclose this, but you know, it's up to you as to where your ethical compass guides you, essentially.
2: So is that as yeah. you're trying to avoid litigation, or at least trying to direct your clients or advise your clients on probably the best way to avoid litigation, at least as it relates to failing to disclose?
7: Yeah, I mean, you know, me as a real estate attorney who does not do litigation, I mean, I'm strictly transactional. I don't want to get involved in litigation, period. I mean, no real estate attorney who's in my position ever wants to get involved in litigation. So, you know, whether it's litigation that's frivolous or not, we never want to have a client be sued. So I'm always of the mind that I'm going to try to advise my client in such a way that they avoid any sort of litigation, whether it's frivolous or not.
4: Yeah. And, you know, we see a lot of cases out there in the public, not just for houses uh, like the one depicted in The Watcher and in in, in the real life version of that story. By the way, in real life, the family never actually moved into the house, uh, as is depicted on the show. So there's a little bit of creative license there. But, you know, you see lots of examples of houses who have some kind of criminal history, murder uh suicides uh some kind of attack and those tend to generally devalue the selling price of the house on the other hand you know you have curiosity seekers who might pay a premium for a murder house or something like that so you know what effect does uh something like this some kind of past history have generally on the value of a house
7: uh it depends um there was a house on Loomis Street in Naperville where a, a woman smothered her three children years ago. Um, that house uh, ended up selling, you know, for a little bit of a discount. Um, somebody did end up buying that house. It sat on the market for a bit, um, but somebody ended up. Buying it, um, everybody, of course, knew locally the story of that house. You know the Lizzie Borden house. Um, I think it's New Jersey, maybe. Um, somebody bought that house and turned it into a bed and breakfast, and now makes money off the fact that it was the Lizzie Borden house, and people pay a premium, you know, to go stay there. You know, other houses like the Gacy house. I mean that the ha- that house was was bulldozed and that you know new house was built there and the address was actually changed you know to prevent people from you know gawking essentially so I mean it really depends on you know what you know what the community wants how if it sells or not you know it, it really all depends
4: yeah I mean like anything else in real estate it really depends on finding the right right buyer for that house regardless of whether there's some you know Watcher or, or, or other act on it. But let's, in, in the states where I realize Illinois, there is no duty, but in the states that you mentioned where there is some duty to disclose uh, and a seller or a broker doesn't disclose, how do the courts, if you know, generally look at damages? How are dam- damages calculated? Because, you know, you're still getting a house. You're not going to, you know, I guess you could argue, and these plaintiffs do argue that they might not have purchased it without it, but you've got still in possession a valuable piece of property. So how do courts look at the diminution of value given this undisclosed activity or, or, or uh, prior criminal history?
7: Um, you know, it's it's difficult to quantify, you know, damages. I mean, a lot of times in, in real estate litigation, you're looking at quantifying actual damages. Um, in this case, a lot of times what What the damages clause will say is actual damages plus, you know, whatever the court deems proper, which frankly could mean anything. Um, There's there's really no way to quantify it. A lot of times punitive damages are not really part of that process. Sometimes attorney's fees are, um, you know, but mostly it's actual damages and whatever the court deems proper.
2: So, Rachel, pivoting back to Illinois for a moment, when triggered, what remedies are available through the Illinois Disclosure Act and the Illinois Consumer Fraud Act?
7: Um, When triggered, it's it's the same thing. It's the same thing all around the actual damages. And and in a normal case, um, for example, if, if I have a client in default, um or um i have a client who discovers a, a latent defect in a property after you know a non disclosure from a seller usually there's actual damages right you know if you find a property that has a crack in the foundation and the sellers knew about it and you have to pay, you know, for repairs and all that stuff. Typically there's like a quantifying amount that you've suffered damages for. And typically there's no punitive damages that are tacked onto that. It's usually just actual damages unless there's something egregious, you know, attached to that. And even then, you know, with disclosure, it's very difficult to to prove those cases, because you've got to prove that the seller really made an effort and knew about this and deliberately covered it up. Um, and it's hard to prove that.
4: Rachel, last question. You're a Vikings fan, as we know, long time, long suffering fellow. Uh, I may still NFC be suffering Central. by the end of the season. Yeah, Norris Division uh, fan there. Uh, big win two nights ago, the game of the year. Uh, the Vikings seemed for real. Are you excited? Are you planning your trip to uh, Arizona for the Super Bowl? And most importantly, you approve of uh, Kirk Cousins shirtless shenanigans on the plane uh, two games ago.
7: Um, as a Vikings fan, a lifelong Vikings fan, I never have my hopes up. Okay, I do have a Super Bowl bet on the Vikings that I put at the beginning of the season. Which, if they do actually win, and I'm not counting on it, I will cash in big. Um, As for Kirk Cousins, uh, I've never been a huge fan of him. Um, I, I think he's a, I think he's a good quarterback, right? I think that. With the new coach and the new GM, like he's he's come into himself, right? Um, I think that he is a Bible school counselor. like I'm not buying the Kirko chains thing. I think he looks out of place. I think that's a nice way of saying it. Um, I, I you know, I don't know. I, there's always room for disappointment with the Vikings. i'm I'm cautiously optimistic.
1: Well, hopefully they can make a good enough run to where you can at least just hedge your bet if you don't get a full-on payout that way either. Rachel Horbenko of Fearless Legal Services. Find out more at fearlesslegalservices.com. Rachel, thank you so much for the time today.
7: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 to present and Leading Lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer, with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and & Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com.
1: Time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Off podcast. We welcome in our two esteemed guests, Patrick Sodoro, managing partner of Sodoro Law Group. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me along with Maddie Salamone, sports attorney and college athlete advocate, along with host of the Speaking of Athletes podcast. Maddie, thanks for jumping on as well. Thanks for having me. Tina, we start with the topic that we've talked a few legal grab bags this uh, season and maybe even last season as well. Alec Baldwin now continuing to try and push the blame towards somewhere else.
2: Yeah, Joe, so in a not-so-unpredictable move, last week Alec Baldwin filed a lawsuit in California against several individuals who are associated with the Rust film. As you mentioned, we've covered this story many times since last October, when Baldwin fatally shot the cinematographer Helena Hutchins during a rehearsal for one of the movie scenes. So Baldwin, named a defendant in the lawsuit um, filed by Russ Scripps supervisor, decided to turn the table on Friday and filed a cross complaint against several people, including armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the assistant director David Halls, the armorer assistant Seth Kenny, the prop weapon and ammunition supply store company, which Kenny owns, as well as prop master Sarah Zachary. By filing his complaint, he's really trying to just clear his name and hold those who he believes are responsible accountable for their misconduct. He's seeking various types of damages, what we would typically expect in a case like this, including compensatory, statutory, and punitive damages, and he's looking for a jury trial. So he claims the shooting happened because there were live bullets delivered to the set and loaded into the gun that he got and Gutierrez Reed had failed to check for the bullets. Um, He claims that Halls failed to check the gun carefully, also and announced that the gun was safe before handing it to Baldwin. And he claims that Zachary failed to disclose that Gutierrez Reed had been acting recklessly offset and was a safety risk. He claims he had no knowledge of any of this and that the defendants owed everybody else a duty To keep them safe. And when we last reported this story a couple weeks ago, um, we had mentioned that the Santa Fe DA said she might charge Baldwin and others criminally. And she's currently reviewing the matter after the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office recently turned over its investigative file to the DA. So, Rich, I think we're just going to keep hearing about this one for a while. It's not unpredictable at all that Baldwin filed this suit. I mean, it's, I'm surprised he didn't do it earlier, quite frankly.
4: Baldwin's litigious. I mean, either uh, from his history of being a defendant in many lawsuits and also uh, arrested a couple of times for accosting uh, photographers. So um, ironically, you know, the guy he played, our favorite uh, legal face-off subject, Donald Trump is also not shy with uh, lawsuits, but yeah, so all that with all that said, it's not surprising like you said that he's taken the offense. We've seen him, for example, give that you know infamous interview uh, about a year ago where he uh, cried and he um, tried to absolve himself of liability. Um, so I'm not surprised, you know it's a little bit interesting because like you said, criminally he's still under investigation and he might be creating some evidence through this lawsuit that can be used against me yeah. criminally. There's nothing stopping the uh, local DA in Santa Fe from using anything derived from the civil litigation in a criminal suit. Now, who knows when that'll ever happen? I mean, this is taking like the longest investigation in history from a relatively small, you know, it's not like we're talking about Astroworld, right, where there's thousands of witnesses. This is a confined space. So we're waiting. We're wondering why the criminal investigation is taking so long, but um, not surprised. Uh, Maddie, what are your thoughts on Alec Baldwin's liability here and his proactive, preemptive lawsuit?
8: I just, I've, I've thought from the beginning this was a strange case. Um, I'm not overall surprised that he's bringing a suit, but I do think that it does expose him to some risk if evidence comes up that is unfavorable. Um, but I, I think that the It's it's just been very sketchy the whole time. And so that those are my overall thoughts on this this case. That it's just um I think I certainly understand why he would bring the lawsuit. Um and you know, we'll see what happens. But I I think that it does probably expose him to risk, but it's it's probably some risk that he should take to try to clear his name because I think it's been dragged through the mud um since this happened.
4: Patrick, you know what's really interesting, Maddie, and and I agree with all that, Patrick, you know what's interesting is that when the um, decedent's husband recently settled his case, uh, he was made a producer of the film. And he said very specifically that he's not interested in placing the blame anymore and pointing fingers, and he chalks this up to an accident. So it's interesting that the husband, who suffered the greatest loss along with the son, is chalking this up to an accident. But Alec Baldwin is not willing to do that. Alec Baldwin is very much pointing fingers at four other individuals who he is now under penalty of perjury saying are at fault.
9: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, he is a polarizing character uh, in, in real life uh, and devil's advocate for a second. Maybe he doesn't have it. The way I was looking at it, I was just trying to look at it from his perspective, unless he has absolutely nothing to hide. And I don't know what the standard of care is, for the folks that are dealing with the uh, firearms and blanks that go in them. But maybe they did something that they absolutely shouldn't have done. There was some sin committed, and he wants to expose it. Um, I did not know about the uh, decedent's husband and son, though. That, that, they, yeah, that makes you wonder why he cares so much about clearing his name, unless, again, there's something there that is going to get discovered that he wants to be discovered. That's the only thing I can think.
1: Rich Qatar is reportedly spending quite a lot in preparing for the World Cup, but not spending a lot of time and thought on how it's affecting the workers responsible preparing for it.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is not an unexpected you know story, but as the World Cup here starts in in a matter of days, uh, you know, human rights violations and breaches of things that in this part of the world we um, you know val- value, Tina, you know, like you know, I don't know, labor laws and. Uh, um, you know, protecting uh, protecting workers—that's uh, coming to light, and the fact that Qatar or, or Qatar, depending on how you pronounce it, doesn't share our values uh, with regards to a lot of the things that again we take for granted, and particularly uh, the welcoming to these games of some countries that are egregious violators of human rights laws across the world—that is making. Uh, many unhappy now. This is not unexpected, you know. Like I mentioned, anytime there's an international event like an Olympics, like a World Cup, there are certain uh, um, you know teams, certain countries that are involved that are just flat out not uh, on the same page as we are in the Western Hemisphere. Now the question is: Do we still invite countries like that who are violating human rights laws, for example, to these games, or do we uh, avoid that entirely? Uh, understanding that at the end of the day, this is a multi-billion-dollar endeavor, and the very reason that Qatar is hosting the World Cup in the middle of you know the desert with no real history of um, uh, of, of soccer, uh, um, you know, uh, real soccer history, uh, that speaks to the point that it's all about money at the end of the day. Unfortunately, uh, and it's, it's no different here in the World Cup.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree, Rich. It's um, really unfortunate when you look at some of the statistics that have been distributed about what the state of affairs is in Qatar. And as you said, we hear about this often, particularly in the context of games like the Olympics, where venues are chosen. I mean, I remember visiting Barcelona almost 30 years ago after the Olympics were there. Um, and just you know having talked to the locals about how much the city was transformed by having the Olympics there because there's a lot of rebuilding, there's a lot of renovation, there's a lot of building new buildings and bringing jobs to folks locally but the rub is that there are some countries in the world that don't align with what our values are and it's a very tough situation. And I think there's certain, certain issues and certain circumstances like the cutter situation when you look at some of the statistics of people who have been mistreated in a whole variety of ways some people have died working there they they work hard they don't make their money they don't get their money and a whole host of other atrocities um it's a really unfortunate situation and it's i think really up to the folks who are holding these events to really determine the meets and bounds of how countries are going to be chosen and what the conditions are under which um, they participate.
4: Yeah, Maddie, I want to get to you in a second because this is certainly uh, your beat. But Patrick, uh, to Tina's point, 100,000 uh, is the minimum figure for the number of migrant workers that Amnesty, cons- Amnesty International considered to have exploited uh, in Qatar in just the last 12 years. That's certainly just one of a laundry list of you know violations, and and not a, by the way, not a very friendly um, you know country for the LGBTQ plus community. So lots of reasons not to hold the World Cup here. Um, and I was thinking about this topic earlier, and in the context of some other high profile uh, athlete uh, incidents we've seen recently. You know everything from Kyrie Irving to you know many football players who continue to be employed despite some pretty egregious conduct. And again, unfortunately. Um, as someone who loves sports and represents some sports entities, uh, it does come down sometimes. It seems like to the average consumer, average fan, to how much money is involved, and if the money generated from the bad actor uh, is enough, then all this other stuff doesn't make much of a difference.
9: Yeah, it it, it seems like that's the case. Uh, and I, in reading a little bit about the uh, some of the stuff that what that's been going on, it it was pretty shocking. And I, I'm a soccer fan, but to be honest with you, it made me almost not want to watch it. I, I mean, it it looks like they were actually charging recruitment fees uh, to have migrant workers come into Qatar uh, and then asking them to pay those recruiting fees back to the people that placed them. So they were paying their own recruiting fees, which I, I thought was interesting because then when they get there, it, it seems that they were uh, facing some pretty harsh treatment. So um yeah it, it, reading about that and then also some of the other uh social stances they've taken which are it not congruent i, I would say with uh most of the uh the western world that's watching these uh, games is is interesting but i think it it does boil down a lot of times unfortunately like you said to uh the bottom dollar and i mean you talk about uh, other examples of individual sports players who remain employed and making a lot of money because they're at the end of the day entertainers and, uh, they're, they're bringing in cash. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, something that seems like needs to be put under maybe a bit more of a microscope, but who knows if it'll ever go away.
4: Maddie? we see in this country, uh, you know, stadium cities, have lost Super Bowls, have lost NCAA tournaments um, when the governing body has felt that certain actions by those cities or states have been contrary to uh, you know morals or ethics. Uh, FIFA, the IOC, should they be considering things like this when awarding multi-billion dollar events in the future?
8: I think they absolutely should be. Um, I think that the... Um, Olympics Committee, as well as FIFA, has a history of awarding host city um, status to places with egregious human rights violations. Um, The last Olympics was held in China. We know what's going on there. Um, These organizations should be standing up for something. Um, But unfortunately, we know that there's a lot of corruption, um, particularly within FIFA there's even a whole Netflix documentary series um, that goes to this selection process in particular, where uh, voting members um, were bribed by um, Qatar or Cater, um, and how you know how these uh, host cities are are given um, are awarded the, this this honor of hosting um, hosting an event like this, and that there's a great amount of sports washing that happens. The sort of ignores all the things that are going on within the country, and certainly, I think this is a reason why, even at the time that um, Cater is chosen, people were appalled um, because of very predictable things that happen, like what's going on with these migrant workers. Um, and you know, if the sports community globally is not going to stand up for these things with the amount of power that I think that they they have, um, you know, I think it's it's hard to figure out who's, who's really going to do that. Um, and so I think that it should start with these uh, global committees actually holding these countries um, to some standard of how, the way that they treat people within their country in order to receive such an honor.
1: We all know what Hakuna Matata means, but one former Lion King interpreter, Rich, is filled with many worries these days, claiming he was wrongfully removed from his job
4: the circle of life joe you know uh lawsuits get filed and we talked about them here on legal face off that is the great circle of uh podcasting at least well yeah keith juan tina is an interpreter working for uh the theater development fund that is an organization that provides uh sign language interpreters for broadway shows his lawsuit alleges that he was asked to not interpret at the Lion King on Broadway back in April because he is white, not because he was doing a bad job or anything, but because he is white, according to his allegation. Uh, His lawsuit says that the director of the TDF accessibility program, Lisa Carling, wrote him an email saying that, uh, I'm asking you to please back out of interpreting the show for us. Um, uh, and, And she says, I don't see any other way out of this. It seems like the best resolution. Now, the email asked this individual, Juan, and another interpreter to sit down. But there's another email alleging that the director of the show uh, made the decision to terminate only non-Black interpreters. So, of course, this lawsuit touches on some, you know, issues that we've covered on this show before. But at the end of the day, if you believe the plaintiff, he is being singled out because of his race. What's different here is he's white and he's uh, alleging that he's being discriminated against because of his race. Um, I haven't heard from the defendant yet, Tina. We have not They haven't made their response public, but um, on its face, it does seem discriminatory to single out someone because of their race, whether it's white or black. On the other hand, uh, I imagine that the response of the defendant will be that this is a, Show that celebrates African American culture, um, and uh, as such, we want someone from an African American background to sign. I think that's a bit of a stretch. You know, you don't see that argument uh, being put forth uh, in, in in many venues. Um, so, be interesting. What are your thoughts on this one?
2: I, mean, I think there may be quite a bit that we don't know, and it's going to be wrapped at least in part in what the defendant comes back and says. But I agree with you. I think that based on what we know, it does sound like it's discriminatory, particularly since I think that he was previously working with this production. At least that's how I interpreted um, the research that I did on this. And so it's just very odd to go from having been somebody who was working with the production, who's white, to being suddenly like there's a pivot to telling him um, we would really rather that you take yourself out of this production, and then an ultimate termination. I think it, I don't know. I'm just I mean it, it just smacks of Title Seven, unless somehow or some way these folks can claim that Title Seven doesn't apply. To them, But um, I, I don't know. I just I it, it sounds like a pretty compelling case for the plaintiff based on what we know.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, um, the fact that he's been working uh, his lawsuit alleges that he's worked for a number of other shows, including many with, you know, black cast. Um, that makes it tough. Um, Patrick, I think that anytime you've got race involved, let's face it, it's touchy. Um, and especially when you are bringing, you know, when being brought by a white client, to listen, the world is not, um, uh, sympathizing generally with white people who are claiming race discrimination. So, uh, there's probably an obstacle there, but again, at the end of the day, especially if they put in writing, if the defendant put in writing that we're doing this because of your race seems like a pretty compelling argument.
9: Yeah. Um, you know, it's. It was interesting um, to read this one, I, 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 but I do think that there's some um, some argument to be made that the um, the producer of the event or the uh, who's ever orchestrating it, it, it's it's also part of the artistic flavor of what's going on on the stage as well. So uh, you know, I I don't know how much wiggle room that would give them, but I agree. Once they put it in writing, it makes it pretty difficult, I think, to uh,
4: argue otherwise. Well, I think that's an interesting point, though. I mean, listen, I was at a couple of sporting events over the weekend, and the interpreters are featured pretty prominently. Um, And that's at a stadium full of 60,000 people. Um, If you're at a small theater with a couple hundred people, let's say, in the audience, the interpreter standing there on the side of the stage, they become part of the performance, like it or not. I mean, that's a pretty prominent person standing there. And I think the argument that, hey, listen, it's a, uh, a show with mostly black actors and a white person standing there stands out a little bit. That could be a compelling argument. I could probably buy into that as a jury member.
9: That's what I was thinking when I was reading it is it, 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 if they're going to be almost become the center of the show uh, because they're they're not necessarily in the show, but they are in the show. And if it doesn't make sense with the rest of the show, if I was the uh, and I don't know the proper term of the uh, the person who has the final say in theater, but who the producer is or uh, who's ever orchestrating things could say, hey, we we, we can't have this because people are going to stop watching the actual show and they're going to be just paying paying attention to the interpreter, even if they're not using the interpreter's messaging. So that's where I, I thought they might have some wiggle room.
8: I, I would like to add, too, because I I watched an interview with the guy who brought the suit, and there is a backstory to this. He and another woman were apparently brought in as replacements for two other BIPOC um, individuals on who were interpreters. And I think several days later, this email comes out, which I mean, on its face is kind of every HR lawyer's nightmare, I think, to put something like that in writing, regardless of whether you think that it's an artistic choice, um, you know, on its face is problematic.
1: Let's move on to the musical artists of Drake and 21 Savage, Tina, as a judge has ruled against their usage of a new album cover.
2: Yeah, Joe. So the question is to parody or not to parody, which we've asked ourselves a lot on legal face-off over the years. Parodies, as we've talked about, can be tricky to prove um, and use as a defense to an IP or as others call intellectual property infringement claim. The latest case, as you mentioned, involves uh, 21 Savage and Drake. Um, Conde Nast, who publishes Vogue, filed a trademark infringement case against them last week. In the days leading up to the release of their album, Her Loss, which was a few days ago, 21 Savage and Drake were on a media blitz, which included sharing photos of and later distributing copies of a fake Vogue magazine that they put together featuring themselves on the cover. The fake Vogue was just part of the media blitz, which also included promoting pretend media content, such as taking part in an NPR Tiny Desk concert and in a performance on Saturday Night Live. Condé Nast did not really appreciate the attempted humor and sued them seeking at least $4 million in damages claiming that what they did was an outright counterfeit version of what is perhaps one of the most, quote, carefully curated covers in all of the publication business. And they claimed it violated their trademark rights in the name Vogue. So what's interesting is that some experts think it's probably going to be a bit tough to establish that this is a parody um, and that Condé Nast is probably not going to have all that much difficulty proving infringement and i think that's particularly because all of this was done for a commercial purpose which was to promote the new album and to garner attention rather than what folks would say usually is behind a parody that that really holds water which is an artistic purpose this is going to be the crux of what gets looked at assuming that the case moves forward Getting publicity for the lawsuit, Rich, was probably part of the PR plan from the get-go. Ultimately, even if this case settles quickly, I think these guys probably got what they wanted, which was to garner attention through the lawsuit. And it may end up being worthwhile to them to pay whatever they have to pay to settle this to have maybe sold a few more records.
4: Well, not only are they benefiting from the lawsuit, but as we often discuss in these kind of cases on Legal Faceoff, Tina, especially when analyzing what damages exist from alleged you know, intellectual property violations, uh, it's what benefit is Vogue getting? Guess what year Vogue started? Anyone Anyone want to guess? Tina, Maddie, Joe, 1920, yeah. close. No, it's older than fire. It was invented. It was started in 1892. So the fact that you've got these contemporary artists even wanting to use Vogue, um, I think that speaks to what are the damages? I mean, Vogue is getting a lot of publicity from it, from people who I guarantee you have never even heard of Vogue and would certainly not shell out money to buy it. So, you know, if I was on the jury on this one, I would question uh, the damages. Certainly there appears to be a violation. But again, uh, what are the damages? So, I would look at it that way, um, Patrick. I know you're a Vogue lover, and uh, you know you're you're clearly a fashion connoisseur from, from your look. But what are your <laughs> thoughts on this
9: one? Uh, the first thing I thought of: uh, there's a sports team that I'm a fan of, and they had a really uh, good package that they sent out to season ticket holders about renewing your season tickets, and they had some p- photographs of the, some of the players. The first thing I thought of. I, I mean, and I agree with Vogue on this one is I, I thought about that package that I'd received. And I thought, what if they put some of their players on fake sports illustrated covers and sent that to me somehow, or, or snapshots of that? I, I don't look at every sports illustrated. I wouldn't have known. And it might've enticed me to maybe buy a couple extra tickets. I, I'm not sure. So I don't know if that's too much of a stretch, but I thought that um, something uh, Tina said, uh, really hit home with me was that and i don't mean to uh mischaracterize what you said tina but I, it was something i, I believe like it, it's hard to what i took from it was it's hard to prove the parody i think mm-hmm. you said and and that's that's the example if i just see this um this guy on the front of vogue i'm gonna be like oh that's interesting as a guy on the front of vogue okay well he must be really good and and i think that's where that argument i i i think from vogue can I agree with their argument that it's in a way, he's giving himself in essence a professional credential almost.
2: Well, yeah, Pat, you I mean, that's exactly right. And there have been some courts where their holding has been interpreted that you almost have to tell people you're about to do a parody, which really sort of diminishes the value of a parody in the first instance, which is really trying to make a social commentary. On something, when you sort of preempted by saying, you know, news alert, I'm about to do a social commentary, the power of the parody often gets diminished significantly.
1: Sure. Why couldn't they make an album that wasn't controversial, like a, a, I don't know, a baby swimming naked, chasing after a dollar (laughs) or something like that? You know, something that wouldn't uh, find its way into legal conversations 20 years after Um, How about we move to another effect from the pandemic? Some big law firms are being forced to make cuts after they bulked up when no one else could, Rich.
4: Yeah, Amlaw is reporting that uh, there is a bit of a uh, post-COVID effect of overhiring during COVID now resulting in layoffs across the board, at least in some of the big law firms. Uh, Cooley reportedly laid off a number of lawyers an unspecified number, of course. You know these are uh, private companies, so they don't have to disclose this information. Uh, Kirkland and Ellis has cut mid-level associates recently. Uh, Gunderson Detmer, which is a tech firm uh, in Northern California, laid off um, some attorneys and also delayed the start of incoming first years. Um, again, there's a couple of different reasons that uh, this seems to be on trend. Again, over hiring um, as well as the recent. Reduction of large scale deals. Although, Tina, when I think about all the deals we're hearing, I mean, the the federal government is actively trying to stop many deals, uh, alleging that there are monopolies. So there seems to be uh, a lot of deals happening still that generates a lot of legal work, right? Um, But what are you seeing from your perspective, uh, being a veteran of of big law yourself?
2: Well, Rich, you know, I think that we're seeing signals and signs and have heard that. You know there is something that's going to look like a recession coming or an actual recession. There's a lot of the pundits who are writing about, is this going to be the great recession or is it going to be something short of that? I think we're seeing a number of things that are converging here. I think that folks hired for the demand that they had when they had it. And I think There is, in certain pockets, a decrease in demand, particularly in certain sectors like tech. Um, I work with a number of pharma companies, and that's something that my firm does quite a bit. And I know that they've been very cost-conscious, actually, starting at the beginning of this year. So I think that we're seeing sort of like a wave, and it just depends on what sector you're in, um, I don't think that we can say that most our firms are doing this. We certainly are not. Um, I think it's just one of these things where we have to take it day by day. I think where the bad press really comes in is when firms are doing the stealth layoffs. I think that's when you really start seeing people getting very negative about certain organizations and firms in the press. It's horrible enough to have to actually take these measures sometimes, but to say that you're not doing it when you've got folks within the organization who are going to the press saying that they're happening, that's what makes it really tough.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that's all true. Maddie, what I'm seeing in in my part of the world at a smaller firm and a lot of my friends who are at some midsize and and larger firms is uh, again, the trend that we see across every industry, which is a lot of turnover, Hard to find people who are quality people. There's lots of people you can hire that aren't, you know, great. But there's very few attorneys, from my perspective, who are really great attorneys. So there's a great demand for those people. I think a lot of firms, uh, again, to the point of some of the AmLaw research, is that uh, they wanted to overhire um, to take into consideration some of what I'm saying, and also to consider that some of those people will just naturally depart quickly, given, you know. Uh, all the all the turnover we've seen, but there hasn't been the attendant uh, increase in work. So you've got all these people who you hired, uh, and some of them aren't leaving, maybe as expected. So that's where some of this some of these problems are, are happening.
8: I, I think a deeper issue too that's going on is there is a tremendous need to change the legal model. I think starting in the law schools, I think the reason why you see so many people working for big firms is because that's where you get trained. Um, you, we, I think we all know that you don't you don't learn the skills that you need to be a practicing attorney and certainly a competent one while you're in law school. Um, but I think that this is also a shift that's been going on within the le- the excuse me the legal industry for um, several years at this point, where you're seeing shifts towards companies trying to figure out how to cost cut, um, looking a lot deeper at the billing um, in firms, and I think firms having to adjust and um, take a, take a look at what they are billing and what categories, um, people are very sensitive to. Um, and so I think that that's also part of what's going on, but certainly it, it's a really, I mean, that's, that's really tough. And I think it does potentially put these firms in a bad position later on, not having some of the senior level attorneys who have come up the, the chain if they're kind of laying them off now.
4: Patrick, your firm uh, is in many states. You're growing. Um, you've got lots of lawyers that work with you. What are some of the trends you're seeing in, in your markets? Well,
9: I, I I echo what you said, Rich. Uh, it's it's hard to find um, good quality attorneys, just like it's hard to find good quality accountants right now. Um, but you know, one thing I think that we need to be careful of is um, just doing a mass hiring and then planning on having, say, hire four people. Uh, so maybe not a mass hiring, but maybe you need two people you hire four and think, well, uh, two of them aren't going to work out, so I'm just going to hire four people. I, I don't think that that's uh, good for... I know it's not good for culture, number one, but number two, it's just not the right thing to do. And I, I, I think that I can't help but wonder, and I've never worked in a large firm um, <clears throat> myself, but I can't help but wonder if maybe that's some of what's going on is, I think we're going to need 40 people, maybe we need to hire 60, And we'll see there'll be some attrition there. 50% of them probably aren't going to work out. So um, I I don't know if there could be something to that. But I think, uh, you know, one benefit we have um, being a a smaller firm is and not having to hire 40 lawyers at a time or 30 lawyers at a time is being able to take the time and and actually um, vet people thoroughly and uh, get to know them as much as possible through the interview process.
1: It's a good old-fashioned fast food fight, Rich. Raising Canes in Indiana is raising hell for a popular food item left off the menu.
4: Yeah, in uh, in nearby Hobart, Indiana, uh, Raising Canes, which is a chain that sells mostly chicken fingers, boneless chicken fingers, signed a lease. Uh, not a small lease, 15 years, worth uh, $2 million for 3,000-square-foot uh, restaurant and they discovered only after signing this legal document that there was a covenant, you know, a restrictive covenant in the lease that says, "Hey, guess what? You can't sell chicken fingers." Whoops! It's kind of a problem when uh, the word chicken fingers is practically in your logo, right? I mean, they're famous for for not selling much else besides chicken fingers. So, you know, they sued, saying, "The hell's going on? We sell chicken fingers. How are we not supposed to sell chicken fingers?" Uh, again, the lease specifies that in this mall, in the strip mall, um, where there is a McDonald's. Only McDonald's has the right to sell chicken fingers. And, you know, uh, that's a problem for a company that sells chicken fingers, I I imagine. So they sued. And uh, the response, of course, um, in in Texas federal court is that uh, it's a really uh, intricate uh, legal theory, Tina. Let me make sure I pronounce it. It's like, uh, hey, dummy, read the contract is the, is the legal response, right? I mean, it's like, read the contract and do a title search, right? I mean, a lot of us have purchased homes. It's very common when you purchase any property, including a home, or in this case, sign a commercial real estate contract to make sure no one owns it. And not only that no one owns that property, but there are no covenants, which is just a contract that says you can't do something, right? So if you buy a house and it says uh, your neighbor can build a fence on your property line, that's a problem. You would fix that, or you would not buy the house. In this case, if they read the contract, they would have read that there's a covenant that says only McDonald's gets to uh, sell boneless chicken. You're out of luck. And they didn't do that, allegedly. So that's where uh, some of this chicken war uh, is going to come down, Tina. But uh, maybe a case for not great lawyering, perhaps.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Rich. Assuming it's in the lease, you know, just read the lease, especially when you're a commercial tenant, That is going to be investing as much money into the space as a place like a restaurant where you can spend gobs of money. Um, And also, even assuming you read the lease, you should definitely do a title search anyway, because as we discussed during the show, um, there's certain things that need to be disclosed and there's certain things that don't need to be disclosed. And it's a creature of state law. I mean, even if the lease was silent on it, it, a prudent tenant would have done the search anyway and probably would have found this restrictive covenant. So, um, I mean, no matter how we slice it here, I have a hard time being sympathetic in this situation for the tenant.
4: No matter how you slice that chicken. um, (laughs) uh, But Maddie, I mean, listen, uh, we all, I'm sure, enjoy a nice piece of fried chicken mystery product but like uh it says you can't have another boneless chicken restaurant i'm pretty sure that i've tasted bones and all these products at some point so i thought this lawsuit would go a different way and analyze whether there it's in fact chicken or whether it's in fact boneless you know we cover a lot, a lot of lawsuits involving is subway tuna really tuna so but this seems like just a straight contract issue
8: you know, that would be a very creative argument. I think you should make it. Um,
4: yeah.
8: I will say, I guess to play devil's advocate, because I do think that it was a matter of due diligence that they did not perform adequately because they should have absolutely read the lease and done the title search. Um, but it was an interesting point in, in the article that I read about um, the 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 mall owners being on notice that McDonald's was very litigious because there was a previous issue with another tenant. And so I think... As a matter of good faith, maybe they should have been aware of that and informed them, um, and not tried to bring someone in who specifically sold boneless chicken um, fingers. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that it's a pretty tough case. Maybe it could be an area of developing property law. Um, and there could be, <laughs> you know, something new there. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's that's a pretty uphill battle because they didn't
1: All
4: right. search. It's a good point. And like, you know, listen, we all learned caveat emptor from day one of law school, like let the buyer beware. And Patrick, earlier on today's show, we talked about the implications of, you know, selling uh, a watcher house without disclosing that you've got a watcher. Um, Do you think it's compelling that, listen, yeah, maybe it's in the agreement, but you know, the seller, the landlord should probably say something before they before they you know, sign this lease with someone who is clearly violating or intending to violate this restrictive covenant.
9: Yeah, I and, and, and maybe I, I might have missed something, but was it was it in the lease that they couldn't do it or was it just the underlying restrictive covenant? Because I didn't think it was in the lease the way I I, I was reading about it,
4: but I could be wrong. Yeah, there was uh, I, I, it was in the restrictive covenant, I think. <laughs>
9: It, yeah, well, if it, yeah, it, it's it, if it if it was in the lease, I I have a tough time feeling sorry for raising canes. Um, if it wasn't in the lease, I think that changes everything. If there was just a covenant out there that needed to be discovered through a title search, then it gets to be, I, I think, a, almost a little bit sneaky on the landlord's part because they're not going to put it in the lease. It's going to get missed. We'll wait and see if this com- Commercial broker, whoever the the person that's handling leasing for Raising Canes or the franchise, the franchisee is going to go do a title search. Um, and, and I'm not sure if that's a, a, again to bring up the standard of care. I don't know if that's the standard of care for a commercial broker to do. Uh, but if it is in the lease, then I, I mean, it, come on, you got you're going to sign a, a, a multi-million dollar contract.
4: You, you ought to read it. Is my opinion. Joe. I don't know if you Joe. I don't know if you noticed this part of the story, but the attorney for the defendant in this case was a gentleman, a fellow member of the bar, named um, Mario Little. You think he's thinking the sky is falling during this uh, lawsuit? <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up.
1: Yeah, no, I, I didn't know where you were going with that. But uh, yeah, th- that makes a little bit of sense. Um, how about the transitioning? The last legal grab bag that we had, we talked about Halloween lawsuits. And now we move into Thanksgiving lawsuits. So, well, Tina, the floor is yours. I don't know if you want to start with your favorite one or or not.
4: But I got to say, Joe, I do feel a little weird today not having undergone seven costume changes like our last episode. So, <laughs> we are. I was, that we are, was the
2: record. You and Beyonce were head to head for that.
4: <laughs> my we turkey costume didn't yet come. The
1: turkey costume is being delivered next, next episode. And we're all devastated. You know, we, we were really anticipating a, a, a Thanksgiving themed wardrobe change multiple times today, Rich.
2: Well, we love the holidays here at Legal Faceoff, as Joe mentioned, because it's not just our favorite time of year to spend with friends and family um, and to celebrate the year end. But it's because we also get to talk about the crazy stuff that people pull, which inevitably leads to some crazy lawsuits. And Thanksgiving is no different Um, In the interest of time, I would love for us all to talk about our favorite case. We all took a look at a few of these crazy cases, and I'm happy to start. There's just so much good stuff here. I don't really know how to pick. But because I am an intellectual property lawyer at heart, I do have to go with the 2010 Texas case where somebody, it was Greenberg Smoked Turkeys, that sold turkeys with instructions on how to cook a turkey, found out that another company had taken these similar um, recipes that they had on their packaging and um, used the same recipe. And so they filed a lawsuit claiming that it was a copyright infringement. So not surprisingly, the case turned out that uh, you really can't protect recipes unless There's something really novel about it, um, at least not under copyright. That's why things like Kentucky Fried Chicken's recipe for the herbs and spices is a trade secret. And as long as you keep it a secret and treat it as a trade secret, that's a much more effective way to guard a recipe. So that's my IP service announcement for the day.
4: That's a good one. My favorite favorite one is the lawsuit involving the two people who... uh, It's kind of a Dick Cheney lawsuit uh, involving hunting and and shooting your buddy. Uh, So the one guy heard gobbling noises and uh, saw a flash of red. He turned around and shot at the area, the bush. And instead of shooting a turkey, he shot his friend. Uh, And uh, that guy turned around and sued the shooter for negligence. And this is my favorite part of the the story. He, He argued that turkey hunters must be able to see the entire bird before shooting, which, yeah, I mean it makes sense. But also, must be able to determine its gender? What? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Something with the coloring of a rich. I, oh, I, mean, I don't even want to know how you figure out a turkey's gender, let alone put the legal duty on a hunter to know that. I mean, uh, who would be involved in that? Um, anyway, the court said that uh, uh, hunters assume the risk of hunting for sport, but they should not assume the risk of negligence on behalf of other hunters. So, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Uh, I guess it's the color thing, but the whole process of determining the gender of poultry seems to be a bridge too far. That's probably the reason, besides the fact that I'm Jewish, that I don't hunt, and I certainly don't hunt turkeys. So Jews aren't known for their hunting prowess. You know, we like to buy a nice bird and then cook it, but we're not going out and bagging it. But, I don't know. Patrick, you're, uh, you're you love... Turkey, I know. What, what was your favorite uh, Thanksgiving lawsuit? Yeah, I, I love Turkey so much that uh, one of them, I don't know if it's my, maybe
9: it's my least favorite, but it's stuck in my mind was the uh, uh, Golden Ponds Thanksgiving legacy. Mm. It was a uh, it was a buffet that apparently wasn't, and I didn't know you needed to do this, so note to self, uh, preserving their gravy, I think it was at a certain temperature. Uh so the bacteria tainted gravy uh infected 306 people uh many of which were uh, had life-threatening uh illnesses and were hospitalized um and it looks like uh it didn't end well i know that for the restaurant um it had operated for more than 30 years closed in 2017 and was demolished several months ago so i'm a big buffet guy i love buffets Uh, one buffet, I guess I'll never get to. And I, I I just don't know how much time now needs to pass between now and the time I can not eat at another buffet. And I don't think I'll ever eat gravy at a buffet again.
4: Well, I thought I, speaking of assumption of risk though, like I assume that if I ever go to a buffet, at least half of the products there are tainted with salmonella and a variety of bacteria that hasn't even been, you know, diagnosed yet. So like, again, caveat emptor, buddy. Let the buyer beware. If you're going to eat at a buffet where the general public has access to the gravy, that's yeah. on you.
9: Anywhere there's a sneeze guard over something
4: you're about <laughs> to do, worry, I guess. Right? What do you expect for $8.99 all-you-can-eat-turkey fixings, Maddie?
8: <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I actually enjoyed the uh, the Woolworths story where the lady was choking on a turkey bone and, um, I think I enjoyed the part that it was actually removed with the help of a bystander. And I (laughs) imagine someone somehow (laughs) sticking a hand down a stranger's throat. I don't know if that's actually how it happened. Um, But I also cited in, I guess the suit was embarrassment, um, along with the medical fees, which were only $36 in 1938, um, and a total judgment of $500. So I just thought it was an interesting um, flashback of. The way that things used to be. Um, But yeah, I guess uh, you have to be careful (laughs) not to swallow a turkey bone.
4: I mean, but it's 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 an interesting point, Maddie, and it's a precursor to the uh, modern nature of uh, how plaintiff's attorneys have ruined our country. This is a woman who's choking on a turkey bone. Someone goes ahead and helps her uh, actually live. And what happens? Does she thank that person? Does she thank the store? Oh, she turns around and sues. And by the way, sues over 36 bucks. I don't know. I don't have my ca- my damages calculator, but in 1936 uh, or 1938 dollars, that's still a small amount of money. Um, I mean, she did pretty well, Patrick, with like 10 time specials. But come on, be thankful you didn't die on the floor of that Woolworths and stop abusing the early days of our legal system lady. <laughs>
2: Well, and she was eating turkey. I mean, what does she expect?
4: Turkey
2: yeah. bones get found in turkey. I mean, seriously, I, I would be more worried if there wasn't a turkey bone in my turkey.
4: By the way, she it was could eating like that
2: fake stuff.
4: Yeah. She was eating turkey at Woolworths, not it's at a, a, at a buffet or restaurant. <laughs> it was like a, a counter where they serve coffee. She's the one person who ordered turkey at the Woolworths back in the Depression era. Serves her right, I say. Well, at least you don't have to worry about the gravy there. You just have to worry about the chicken bones. Exactly. All right, let's go around the horror now, Joe. Our favorite segment around Thanksgiving. And your fa- If you had, if you're on a desert island somehow, and this desert island was hosting a Thanksgiving dinner, but only one Thanksgiving piece of uh, food, only one dish existed, what would be that one dish that you pick? We'll start with Joe. Joe, what's your favorite?
1: We'll go with, uh, was my mom's staple white castle stuffing. And I, I do enjoy making it too. It's just, it's got everything. It's got some meat in there. It's, it's got the the tastiness of the sliders and you turn it into a Thanksgiving dish and, uh, most people are satisfied. Some other people will end up suing the dinner, but that's okay. It's a risk willing to take.
4: Awesome. You're, what was your mom doing by the way, in 1938, we might have the, this might all come full circle. This might be, uh,
1: No, no. Honestly, that story reminds me. Is it like a Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan situation? I was supposed to die in the field. I was supposed to die at the dinner table on Thanksgiving, just like all my predecessors and and upset that she got saved by her life.
4: Survivor skill. Patrick, favorite Thanksgiving uh, dish? Uh, Stuffing, but with sausage in it. I don't know. That's just wrong. Now that is.
9: I I know. I don't know if it it was. Sounds super strange. That's a hot take. It was an Italian thing. (laughs) My my grandfather's from Sicily. I don't know if they just decided to throw Italian sausage and stuffing one year, but it they started making it. My mom still makes it, and I love it.
4: Let me ask you a question: How many members of the Sidoro family have choked to death on? sausage laden stuffing. <laughs> we're we are too good of eaters to choke on anything.
9: We just we can chew really well and
4: it, it we can we can take a lot down. All right, very good, Maddie, Uh please don't say something traditional with sausage stuffed in no, it. No,
8: and no. Um I would go with my mom's uh pumpkin bread. It is highly addictive Ooh. and delicious. Um you can't have just one slice. So Thanksgiving would not be Thanksgiving without it.
4: All right. Tina, that's an excellent answer. Tina No one's no one's hit the obvious ones, which I like so far. Usually everyone tries to hit the obvious ones. But Tina, give us something unusual, maybe from the Italian part of the uh, martini clan that uh, is a Thanksgiving staple.
2: Well, Italians do like to put sausage in everything, whether it's appropriate or not. I'm of northern Italian descent. I can still attest to that. I love cranberry sauce. My aunt and I used to make cranberry sauce together and she passed away a few years ago. So I have fond memories of getting awesome cranberry sauce and making it with my aunt.
4: But not the can, not the one that you could see. The no, not the, the can, can right? no.
2: Taking, like buying cranberries and actually making the cranberry sauce from scratch.
1: She and her aunt had a lot of great times opening up the can of the cranberry <laughs> sauce, Rich. Shake it out. Yvonne, Yvonne. Yvonne.
4: Yvonne, give us your favorite, our trusty oh, behind
9: man. the scenes. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to go traditional, Rich. I'm going to go with
1: macaroni and cheese.
9: <laughs> Actually, my mom makes this kind of white spaghetti. That's really mm. nice. I like that. It's got, I don't know, it's got some like ham, bacon, seasonings. I don't know. It's white spaghetti. I, I like it. So that's that's mine
4: good one in case you need another reason to fall asleep around four o'clock you're adding mac and cheese to the exactly. to the diet that day so my favorite is um the traditional general Tau chicken you know as a uh, uh, as someone who grew up in Canada and also as a Jewish individual it's weird we didn't really celebrate Thanksgiving at all for the first uh, couple decades of my life and even coming here even though now I'm a proud at least partial American dual citizen we don't celebrate Thanksgiving so much I try to for the kids and stuff but more often than not, we're going to a Chinese restaurant on both uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve. So that's my favorite Thanksgiving dish right there.
1: Yeah, it sounds see, like you're you're totally you. sulking in the Thanksgiving American culture, Rich. See yeah, you so. in Chinatown, Joe. <laughs> all right. Well, that's uh, enough turkey talk. We're probably all going to go down for a long winter's nap after the weather that we had here in the Chicagoland area. Big thanks to everyone on the Legal Grab Bag, including Maddie and Patrick, along with our earlier guests, Rachel, Walt, and Brian and especially to our producers that make this whole thing go, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast if you do enjoy it, or if you don't, give us five stars anyway. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. You've been listening to the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio.
0: It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off two lawyers trading jab for jab so hit them up with any questions you have wgn radio we blowing up your stereo got a question just pick up the phone and they'll let you know covering sports hollywood and don't forget